Lord God, I thank you for the call to abide. I'm grateful for your presence here with us in the church and in our homes. I thank you for your love for us and the promise of a full joy as we participate in the work that you're doing in our lives. Help me please now as I preach and for each one of us to understand your will that we might please you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here we are in the Easter season, as I mentioned, and today I'm going to address one of our personal values as a church. In this, in this sermon series called I Have Seen the Lord, we've really been focusing on our personal walk with God. If you go to the church website and you look up our vision and values, the personal walk with the Lord is something that we teach and value. This isn't a religion alone. It is a religion, but it's not about religion. It's actually about a relationship with God. And I have seen the Lord were the words that Mary Magdalene first spoke on that Easter morning as she declared the resurrection to the disciples. And so we are pursuing him. He is still able to be seen by faith now. And this morning, I want to talk to you about a discipleship topic, but I think it's going to be helpful for even those who aren't sure what they think of God. But let me begin with a quote. I've been in C.S. Lewis a lot this week, and I want to read one of my favorite quotes about abiding. Lewis writes this, the real problem in the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming in out of the wind. With that quote, C.S. Lewis has described for the Christian the difficulty of laying down our will and our desires and surrendering them, surrendering them to God. He goes on and he talks about discipleship with a metaphor of it being more like a stain for woodwork that has to soak into the fibers of the wood rather than paint that's just applied on the exterior. Christianity is about the stain working its way in. God is totally transforming us, and that requires us to remain with Him and to allow this process to happen on a regular, day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Now, for the believer, it's about cooperating with what God is doing in your life rather than resisting Him. I'll come back to the word abide in a minute, which is very prevalent in this particular passage. But for the skeptic, the seeker, the person that would not yet call themselves a Christian, I think this topic is helpful because it will help you understand and know what God is intending to do in the lives of his followers. So it gives you a, an opportunity to decide for yourself, am I willing to let God do this for me? And what are my other options? And I also hope that it will generate in you some patience with Christians, recognizing that we're all a mess and that it takes time to become what God wants us to become. It's a process, and it's about a dynamic relationship with God. And sometimes it's like a tug of war pulling back and forth. God wants me to go in a direction, and I resist Him, and then I yield to Him, and back and forth, back and forth. Now, you've probably, if you've been listening to our preaching for a while, you've probably heard my definition of a disciple. I, I, I like simple 
definitions that help us. And I took Jesus's words from Mark chapter 117, where he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men to his first disciples. And I break it down into three parts, an invitation to come follow him, which is the call to conversion. I will make you is the process I'm going to really focus on today. And fishers of men, embracing God's mission to bring the gospel to the whole world. Now, all of us at times struggle with each of these three things. The first one, being converted, coming and following Jesus. It flies in the face of our own desire for independence. I have to trust that God's way is better for my life than my own. I still sometimes think I can do it better. I got this one, God. You just sit it out. Let me do this. I'm going to go this way. Or that third one about mission. I still sometimes wrestle and think that's only for evangelists or missionaries. That's not for every Christian, but the call is to take up God's heart for all people. He's calling all of us to be his witnesses in the world. That's why as a church, our mission statement is taken straight out of the Great Commission to go and make disciples, go into all the nations. Our God is a missionary God, and he wants us to be on mission with him. But it's that second one, I will make you, that I want to focus on today. Our problem with it is that we're willing to let God do a little work. Yeah, I've got that nagging habit, or I've got that, you know, irritability that happens at times, or I can get selfish, or, you know, a little bit of help would be fine. But let's not get carried away, God. Don't be doing much more than that. And the idea here is that he, he's not going to stop until you're perfect. And so we, we hedge our bets sometimes. We pull back. I think you know that Heather and I, my wife Heather and I, spent time in England for three months. It was as long as we could because she was pregnant with Hannah. Um, and it was an immersion experience in a church. But it came about in a way that we were in a prayer service, and our friends, Tom and Allison, were going to do this immersion experience. And I was sitting in the service, and I was praying, God, how much money should I give Tom and Allison to help them with their trip? You know, and I was, I was saying numbers in my head. And the Lord said to Heather, you and Mike are going to England too. I was willing to give a little bit of money to something that was good. And God went, oh no, I have way more in store for you. I want you to go there too. That's just part of our story. A different McDonald, George MacDonald, a 19th century Scottish minister and author, a fiction writer and a theologian, used the metaphor of a house for this process of God's work in our life. And he said, Initially, when we invite God into our life, we think kind of like our house. Yeah, it's great that he can fix that leak on the roof or that problem with the plumbing. But the problem is, from our perspective, when he comes into our life, he starts really messing around. He tears down a wall. He puts an addition on. He starts building up a second floor. See, we have in our minds that we have this nice little cottage, and we want God to help us with our cottage. And what he's trying to do is build a palace because he himself intends to come dwell in it, dwell in our lives. And so he's not going to stop until we're perfect. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he actually means that. Now, it's not in our strength alone. God's going to do this in our life, but it's about cooperating with him. And God is doing a new thing in us. You know, sometimes you'll hear Christians talk about being born again or... um, 
having Christ formed in us or having the mind of Christ or a new life or being baptized in the Holy Spirit or putting to death the old man and becoming a new man, all this kind of language. And sometimes it gets lumped up with, that's just Christianese for doing church stuff. But it actually is what God thinks he's doing. He's putting a new heart in you. He is changing you. He is actually forming Christ in your character. And at times it can be excruciatingly painful. And so people resist it. Christians resist it. We pull back. And in this chapter, John 15, it's about embracing God in and with you. Rather than than bracing yourself against him, embracing him, choosing to open yourself up to it. I'm going to point out a couple of these words in here. This is such a rich passage. You could do a word study on about seven or eight words in here. But I want to start with the first word. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. It's another metaphor. Jesus is here using the seventh I am statement. He is basically saying, I am God. When Moses asked what God's name was, God told him, I am that I am. And it's emphatic here. I, I am the true vine. Jesus does this seven times in John's gospel, and this is the seventh time. In here, he is saying that he is the true head of the people of God. When you look up the the phrase vine or the metaphor vine for the people of God in the Old Testament, it's often matched with judgment because they didn't do what God wanted. He planted a vineyard, he expected fruit, and he got sour grapes, and he got wild shoots, and it was not doing what he wanted. And Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I want to point out that Jesus is saying he's God, but he's also showing and modeling for us a complete dependence on his father. He's not going independent here. And he's speaking to his disciples. This is all part of the upper room discourse. Literally, he's going to be arrested this night. He's been in the upper room in John 13. And then last week, we looked at John 14. This is John 15. They're walking out from the upper room in the city, and they're going over to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is going to come to the point of being so anxious about his crucifixion that he actually sweats blood. And he gives this metaphor for his disciples. These are his followers, his 11. Judas has gone out to betray him. The 11 are with him. And he says to them, God wants fruit in your life. He says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. God wants fruit in your life. And so he prunes you. Now, I cannot call myself a gardener. I have a philosophy of living in the suburbs where I put things in that I hope are in the right place and are hardy because it's going to be tough. I'm not going to be out here, you know, pampering you little plant. You either make it and look good or you don't get to be in my yard. And we planted knockout roses in front of one of the windows in the front. And roses, as you know, need some tending. And I've ignored them completely. And I was irritated with them. And so I cut them. I cut them back. Imagine what happened. If you're a gardener, you know. Roses need to be trimmed back. They need to be pruned to bear fruit. This is the best year for those roses. We're marveling at the front of our house. It's got all these big blooms on it. It looks amazing. It required the trimming, the pruning to bring out that kind of beauty, that kind of fruit, so to speak. And Jesus is saying that this is how God treats his followers. He's going to prune your life so that it bears fruit. 
And he also is clear that being cut off from him is a reality too. Judas walked with them for three years and chose not to be part of the kingdom and was cut off. He rejected God's life and God's work in him. And it's a, it's a terribly frightening thing to look at. And we see it here in the scriptures. Now, what he's saying to the rest is, abide in me. In verse 4, that word of abide comes in. He says, abide in me and I in you. Odd grammar, actually. It's a commandment, but it's a two-directional commandment. Abide in me, and I'm saying to myself, I'm abiding in you. I want to be present in your life, and I want you to work with that. I want you to embrace it. The word abide is in John's gospel 14 times. 11 of those are here. What's weird in the metaphor is humans, unlike branches, can cut themselves off. A branch is just attached, and it needs a vine dresser to trim it. But in our case, we have real volitional will. We can choose not to be part of what Jesus is doing. Jesus stays connected. um, We're supposed to stay connected to Jesus as he is connected to the Father. Look at what it says in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is dependent on the Father. He chooses to stay connected to the Father. Elsewhere, he says, everything that I've said, I've heard from the Father, I only, my ministry is only coming out of the relationship I have with the Father. Now, the the word fruit in verse 2 is a little bit tricky, too. What is the fruit? How do you know if you're actually bearing fruit? What is it that God wants to see in your life? Well, some people will say the fruit is converts, helping other people come to faith in Christ. It's doing the work of evangelism or missions, as I mentioned. Yes, that's a part of fruit, but I think there's something even more fundamental than that. Some would say, like in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit, and he goes through nine character virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Well, maybe the fruit is the character being formed in my life. Yes, that's a part of it, but there's a deeper thing still. The fruit he's talking about in this passage, it's the the sharing in the divine life by knowing and loving God. This passage goes further. We stopped at verse 11, but when you get to verse 12, he begins to talk about love and talk about friendship and talk about relationship. Ultimately, those other things, witnessing in the world, doing evangelism, doing missions, um, even becoming someone who's loving and full of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, all of that flows out of the relationship with God. Participation in his divine life by knowing him and loving him and being with him. That's the abiding, and that's actually the fruit. The abiding causes that to happen more and more. And so as Lewis said in the beginning, our first, our primary job each day is to listen to God's voice, not the rival voices that are trying to get our lives to go in a different direction. It's about abiding with him to bear the fruit of knowing him more and loving him more, and then serving him will come out of that. In verse 5, he says something um, very powerful. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a really bold statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And you say, well, that's not actually true. People who are apart from Christ do all sorts of things. In fact, lots of stuff can be done in his name. 
In fact, let me back up for a minute and give an example of this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in, the, in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning the day of judgment, when we all go before God, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? He doesn't refute that. They did those things. There are people that preach the gospel for wrong motives, and God still uses it and bears fruit through that. But they're not doing it in him. They're merely trading on his name. They're not abiding. It's not the kind of fruit. And look at what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He calls them workers of lawlessness because they're doing their own thing. They're just trading on his name. They're not working with him. They're not abiding in him. They're not doing it out of a knowledge of God and a love of God. Whatever their motives are, they're wrong. And he's saying, apart from me, get apart, get away from me. I never knew you. See, abiding is all about knowing him. It's not about what we can do for him. I mean, I know it's kind of tried to say it, but we're human beings, not human doings. Primarily, it's about being. And then joy. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. True joy is found here. A full joy that you cannot find elsewhere. And it's a little bit weird because we have to let go of the things that we think can give us joy and tune in and abide in God. And we find joy. This promise is for all who are willing to come to Christ and walk with him. Feeling God's pleasure in your life, becoming who God created you to be. You know, I, I talked to a lot of what well, used to be younger people, like late teenagers, early 20s, but it seems the age is pushing older and older, who are in this world trying to, quote, find themselves. Um, sometimes people will actually take a gap year before they go to college to go off and wander the world to try and figure out who they are. They're longing for that true home, to figure out who they were really supposed to be or are supposed to be. And what I'm suggesting to you is go to your creator and ask him who he wants to make you to be. He's the one that made you. He's the one who's remaking you. He actually has a plan for your life, and he wants to work in your life. So rather than go out to the world to figure out who you are, go to the one who made you. Now, for the Christian, make the habit of doing this. And it's not like you're going to sit with God in prayer 24-7. This, this starts in increments. You do a little bit at a time. We grow. We grow in a, being attuned to his presence bringing ourselves to him, even being honest about the rival desires. God, today I really don't want to do this, but I think you're, I'm supposed to. Help me with that. I want to want the right thing, but my heart's not right. That kind of prayer is an abiding prayer. And in here, several times, the abiding is about his word. He says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, we have to know what he says. If you're going to know what God wants once done in the world and in your life, you've got to actually read what his word says. So Christians make the habit of going to God in prayer in the scriptures daily. 
In fact, the prayer book sets up multiple times of prayer throughout the day. It encourages us to read the scripture in the morning and the evening, to be people of this book so that we know what his words are and that we can abide in his word and that we can then feel the joy of finding his pleasure in us because we're finally the true person that we were supposed to be because it happens in Christ. Now, in closing, let me just give a couple of things to take away. One, I want you to expect pruning in your life, pruning for fruit. This is something that God is going to do. He's going to keep working in your life until you bear fruit. He tells us here what his will is. He wants fruit in your life. So learn his will by having a daily quiet time. It can start small. There are Bible reading plans. There's all kinds of different ways to do this. Ask someone who's walked with God for a little longer than you, how do they do it? Figure out what works for your personal style. It's not the same for each person, but you've got to find a way to know what his word says. And I I want you to trust that this kind of intimacy will indeed lead to joy. The promise is in here. Jesus is saying, I've spoken this that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Trust that God is going to make good on on that promise. And finally, invite him to help you. Be patient with yourself. This abiding thing is where we find life, but it's hard. It's not easy. And so Christians struggle for a long time with it, all of our lives, in fact. And there are seasons of ebb and flow in this. I want to encourage you to press in, to invite God to help you abide in him. And let's do that now. Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I'm especially thankful for the example of Jesus, whose entire ministry came out of being with you, the Father. Lord, help us to abide in you. I pray that you would heighten our hunger, our desire, our thirst for you. And I pray that we would start to experience the joy that you're talking about here. Lord, for any that don't know you yet, I pray that you'd give them the courage to pray, to actually speak to you, and then listen for what you might say. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.